This week, finding a use for carbon dioxide. Right now, it's considered a waste. We just release it into the atmosphere and do nothing with it. And stem cells offer a test bed for therapies aimed at bipolar disorder. We would be able to take cells from patients that have had an episode, and we could screen these uh, cells to assist the physician in the prescription of drugs that would be most effective. Plus, tracking cancers to stop their spread. This is the Nature Podcast for October the twenty ninth, twenty fifteen. I'm Kerry Smith, and I'm Adam Levy. Our cells get rid of waste proteins in little packages called exosomes that float around in our blood before being flushed from the body. Cancer cells are no exception; they shed exosomes too. That means they can be detected in the blood and potentially used to diagnose cancers early. This might ring a bell because on the show back in June we had researcher Raghu Kaluri, and he had been working on using exosomes to catch cancer. And our interest was to ask the question. Since every cell type releases these particles called exosomes, is there a way to identify them that are released by the cancer cells? And that would then give us an idea of、um, the cancer load that the patient may have, and what type of things that you can identify in the exosome that could potentially be, de- be being derived from the cancer cells. Raghu Kaluri from the University of Texas back in June. Now a group of researchers has moved the story on. They say that not only can they diagnose cancer, they can predict its next move. You see, exosomes have been shown to play an important role in metastasis, the process by which a tumor spreads to other organs. Exosomes act a bit like scouts, seeking out new locations and preparing the sites for tumor cells to grow in. Scientists now think that they can intercept these exosome scouts early, find out where they're headed, and get an early warning of where secondary tumors are likely to pop up. Noah Baker spoke to David Lydon, a clinician and scientist at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. Here's David. The tumor cells are secreting these small microvesicles, the size of viruses, that we call exosomes, and these exosomes circulate and are actually preparing for metastases at distant sites. These exosomes that are being sent out to prepare, you know, to lay the groundwork for the for future tumors. They don't just settle at any organ at all. They they actually have specificity. Is that right? That's correct. Because we all have normal exosomes in our body, and the role they participate in is unclear. But when we inject normal exosomes in animals, they don't fuse with any cells and organs. They get cleared eventually by the kidneys into the urine. What we find for tumor exosomes that are very different than normal exosomes is that when we inject them into normal animals, certain tumor exosomes are going to certain sites, and there's not only are they going to certain organs, but they're fusing with specific cells within those organs. And when you found these exosomes, you found that they're selective for different organs. How do they do that selection? We analyze the protein receptors on the surface of these exosomes, and it became clear to us of all the protein families. There's thousands of them. It became very clear that there was a certain family called integrins that are protein receptors that bind extracellular 
enriched areas such as collagen, laminin, or fibronectin around certain cells in the organs. So finding these integrins, these sort of tags that direct exosomes to particular organs, what, what will that allow us to do in terms of treatment of cancers and detection of cancers? Well, if you're a cancer patient, we would like to isolate your exosomes and find out which integrins are expressed. And so by knowing the integrins, we'll know exactly what organ you're likely to metastasize to. Do we not know already which areas of the body are likely to metastasize? Because different cancers do tend to metastasize in specific organs. That's correct. So, for instance, like pancreatic cancer traditionally spreads to the liver and 90% of the patients. But by this new integrin technique, we'll be um, allowed to identify the other 10% that won't have metastases to the liver. So they won't necessarily need very aggressive therapies. The same can be said of breast cancer. In this case, we don't know what metastatic organ is going to be involved. It could be brain, lung, liver, or bone as the four major organs of metastases. The integrins on the exosomes can dictate which organ will be involved and what is your likelihood of getting metastases. Now, people have been studying exosomes for a little while, but this is still quite a new field and certainly quite a new idea using these integrins. How soon might we be able to take this kind of approach in the clinic? Well, I think we could do this right away because it's very easy to isolate exosomes. And so we're actually here at Well Cornell Medicine establishing an exosome integrin kit that will have the panel of all the integrins for us to really determine your likelihood of metastases and what organs you're going to metastasize to. Is it something that the idea is that every doctor around the world will be able to start using this kind of approach? We hope so, because right now there's not a really good approach for recognizing whether you're going to have metastatic disease and really focus on which organs you're going to metastasize to. We have some uh, growth factors and inflammatory factors in the blood that are helpful, but they can be elevated just in the scenario of a cancer patient, not necessarily a metastatic patient. We think this work, understanding the biology of metastases, can translate very nicely for the clinician and be extremely helpful in guide treatment and which and imaging of the particular organs involved in future metastases. That was David Lydon speaking with Noah Baker. Coming up, testing out therapies for bipolar disorder using a patient's own cells. Plus, an escaping star features in the research highlights. But before that, a new prize aims to find uses for one of our most troublesome waste products. Every few years, the X Prize Foundation announces a new contest. They're big money, ambitious prizes. Previous contests include putting a privately funded robot on the moon. At the end of September, they issued details of their newest competition. What if we could incentivize innovators to help address climate change by turning CO2 emissions into something we can use? Like building materials, low emission fuels, and other items that we use every day. It's a prize for turning trash into treasure. And plenty of scientists are already working on the problem. 
Here's freelance reporter Xiaojie Lim, who's written a feature about recycling CO2. Right now, it's considered a waste. We just release it into the atmosphere and do nothing with it.、Um, but if you can use it, you know, just like how nature uses it, right? Trees take CO2 and turn them into sugars, and you know, they make biomass. And people can do the same thing by by making、um, plastics out of carbon dioxide or other materials. Carbon is a key ingredient in lots of useful materials. For example, plastics to make furniture or more heavy-duty materials for building. One of the easiest ways to use carbon dioxide is to just turn it into calcium carbonate. It's the main ingredient in limestone, and one company that's doing that is Calera, and they're trying to make calcium carbonate out of carbon dioxide and then use the calcium carbonate to make a cement-based、uh, board. That can be used for construction. But even better, why not use the byproduct of a fuel to make more fuel? That's the dream, says Peter Styring, who works on carbon utilisation at Sheffield University in the UK. The advantages of making fuels from CO2 is that you're not using any more fossil carbon. So you're taking the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or directly from a flue gas stack. You're reducing it using hydrogen, and then You are making it into a new fuel. The CO2 from the fuel will get emitted back into the atmosphere. But if you can keep capturing it, then you're setting up、uh, a carbon cycle. It kind of sounds like perpetual motion. Just keep cycling the carbon and producing more fuel with no new emissions. But says Siaojie Lim, there's a catch. The valuable molecules tend to be hydrocarbons, so they contain carbon and hydrogen. So somehow we need to get the hydrogen back. Onto the carbon, right?、Um, the problem is the cheap hydrogen right now comes from fossil fuels. It's so hard to escape those fossil fuels. To steer clear of them, Peter Styring and his colleagues are using renewable energy to power their reactions. But to scale up, they'll need to wait for that industry to develop. They're playing the long game. But maybe that will give them time to solve another surprising problem with plentiful carbon dioxide.、Uh, supply of CO2. Will be an issue because first of all you have to capture it,、uh, and there aren't that many capture facilities operational at the moment. Certainly not at, at any big scale. This stuff that's everywhere—it's very evasive. Let's assume we could catch and process enough CO2 to make this an industry. How much of our carbon dioxide emissions could it help take care of? No, that's a really tricky question. I mean, we took a first estimate at this, and you're talking. At maybe 10% of the CO2 that we need to eliminate from the atmosphere by using、uh, carbon dioxide utilisation, and most of these plants are still at demonstrator phase, so they've not gone to full commerciality. Reusing carbon certainly isn't going to slash our emissions on its own. Even recycling's biggest fans shouldn't expect too much, says Xiaojie Lim. It's not a Complete solution by itself, it, it complements other solutions. That was Xiaojie Lim, freelance writer based in Singapore, and before her, Peter Styring at Sheffield University. Find the feature on carbon reuse at nature.com/news and more about the X Prize at xprize.org.
In case you missed it last week, the ACAR survey of podcast listeners is still open over at podcast-survey.com. Do fill it out and you could win £200 worth of Amazon vouchers. That link again, podcast-survey.com. Coming up in the news, a huge study of babies is cancelled because parents weren't signing up. But first, it's the research highlights with Noah Baker. Most stars in a galaxy move together in a nice orderly pattern around the galactic centre. But some stars have a different idea, making a break for it. These runaway stars travel at different speeds and directions to their neighbours. Now, researchers have spotted a runaway red supergiant in a nearby galaxy. This huge star is ten times heavier than our sun and speeding past its neighbours at over 400 kilometres a second. This makes it the fastest runaway star for its size ever spotted. What's more, this is a star near the end of its life, and these old runaways are normally hard to find, as they've already wandered off too far. For more, see Astronomical Journal. Young adults at risk of Alzheimer's disease show abnormal brain function long before the disease has had a chance to develop. Researchers tested subjects with a gene that predisposes them to getting Alzheimer's disease later in life. Neuroimaging revealed that individuals had reduced function in a part of the brain responsible for spatial awareness, their grid cell system. People with the risk gene also behave differently to those without when given a navigation task. These results indicate that symptoms of disorientation, a hallmark of Alzheimer's, may be present long before the disease. Read the full study in Science. Living with bipolar disorder can be incredibly challenging. The disorder involves episodes of depression and mania, and without treatment, one in seven patients commit suicide. But finding drugs for bipolar disorder, and mental disorders in general, is extremely difficult. No one medication works for all patients, and finding the right substance at the right dose can involve a gruelling process of trial and error. Added to that, researchers are limited in how they investigate the disease. Studying brain cells is not normally possible until after a patient's death, and only so much can be learnt from trying to recreate the disease in animals. Luckily, researchers have one promising approach – making brain cells. They take skin cells from patients who are still alive and reprogram them. Here's Fred Gage, who led the research. We took advantage of a new technology where we took skin biopsies uh, from patients that had been clinically characterised with disease and then through this method of reprogramming, induce the cells or reprogram the cells to become what are called embryonic stem cells in a dish, which then can be induced to differentiate into any tissues of the body. So we coaxed the cells into a particular type of neuron in vitro that we could then begin to assess. And once you'd coaxed them into becoming neurons, what did you find about their behaviour? Our first approach was to determine whether or not we could find any differences in their gene, what we call gene expression. And in fact, we did. And we saw several hundred gene changes that were really quite significant. And many of them had to do with energy uh, utilization. So the energy factories of the cell were called mitochondria. And many of the genes that were changed between bipolar and controls were related to mitochondrial function. Armed with that, we began measuring mitochondrial function in these cells and were able to detect 
clear uh, statistical significant differences between our groups of bipolar patients and the control patients. And it evidenced what you call a, a hyperactivity or hyperutilization of energy from mitochondria in the bipolar patients. Ideally, we'd like to be able to use this information to inform how we treat people with bipolar disorder. Lithium is one of the most common medications. And in this study, you went some way to investigate how that might work. So we had embedded in our, our design three patients that were what we'll call res lithium responders and three that were non-responders. So we treated the cells with lithium and what we observed was that lithium treatment could have a, an effect by lowering the hyperexcitability towards the normal control. Interestingly, in the non-responsive, we did not see an effect of lithium. And I think one of the more interesting things is that lithium had very little impact. Very few genes were actually changed at all in the lithium non-responders, whereas uh, hundreds of genes were changed by lithium in the responders. Importantly, more than 80 of the genes that had been shown to be hyperexcitable in the responders were now lowered in the uh, responding group. For disorders like this, one of the most difficult things in treating them can be just finding the right drug for the right patient. Does this offer a potential to kind of hone in on the right thing earlier? It could be, and, and certainly something we're working on, where we would be able to take cells from patients that have had an episode of bipolar and are being diagnosed as bipolar and beginning their drug regime to try to find some balance of drugs that might be effective for them. And we could screen these uh, cells to, to assist the physician in the prescription of drugs that would be most effective. Uh, currently, one needs to put the patient on a particular drug for months at a time because you need enough time to monitor the changes. We're hopeful that these in vitro assays will allow us to shortcut that. When you're carrying out a study like this, does it feel somewhat theoretical or do you always have in the back of your mind the potential to treat patients who suffer from what is quite a debilitating disorder? You know, I moved into this area of research in, in mental diseases about 10 years ago with uh, the idea that this is a, an unmet need in terms of understanding the underlying molecular mechanisms of the diseases. One thing that is interesting, and I, I, I should say, is that um, many mental diseases are still perceived of as being environmentally induced. They're caused by either... Uh, poor parenting or isolation, but environmental uh, issues that are uh, dependent on the individual and, and with the idea that if they just get their act together, they would be better off. And what's striking about uh, these kinds of cellular studies is you're identifying in a cell that's independent of the individual in, in a dish, and they have an underlying molecular change that's detectable. Having data like this helps to destigmatize mental disease as being an intrinsic problem of the individual. It may be strange to say, but this highlights the idea that this, this mental disease, bipolar, is a biologically based disease, like other biologically based diseases, and should be a, a, approached that way. That was Fred Gage of the Salk Institute in California. You can read the full study over at nature.com forward slash nature.
Finally this week, it's the news chat, and I'm delighted to welcome to the studio Helen Pearson. Hi, Helen. Hi. You've written a story for the news section this week on a large baby study that's been cancelled recently. That's right. There's um, many of these studies around the world which uh, follow big, uh, they're called birth cohort studies, which follow big groups of um, children from the time they're born, ideally, until they die. And um, they're of interest to many scientists, so um, social scientists and also medical researchers who use them in order to try and Uh, make associations between factors which happen early in our lives, like what our mothers ate during pregnancy and um, what kind of socioeconomic circumstances we were born into with things which happen later on. The one that was planned in Britain was going to be one of the biggest and most ambitious. The plans were to follow about 80,000 babies being born this year and in uh, following years and hopefully follow them for the rest of their lives. And unfortunately, uh, just last week, it was announced that um, this study would not not go ahead, even though it was only eight months into its recruitment period. That is a lot of babies to recruit, admittedly. I mean, is that one of the problems? They were too ambitious? Well, I think scientists are still digesting the news, actually. Um, and there's a little bit of contention about whether this study was ended prematurely. So some of the scientists who were running it feel that perhaps they didn't have a chance to actually get their recruitment up and running and really work out the, the difficulties in getting modern women to enrol in, in a study like this. On the other hand, from the point of view of the funders, they really needed to know that there were enough people uh, signing up and that this was going to be a, a, pro- a viable project. How were they doing against their recruitment targets? Because presumably you don't just try and do 80,000 at once. Right. So the plan was to recruit expectant couples over several years. Um, Now, they had aimed um, in an ideal and very optimistic scenario to get as many as 16,000 babies or or pregnant women signed up over about a year and a half. And in the first six months, five to six months, um, they'd only got uh, 249 Um, Now, the scientists argue that that was understandable because um, it's a real challenge to to get people to sign up to a study like this. And they had plans in the offing in order to try and increase incentives for women to sign up. But the funders clearly felt that they weren't willing to take the risk. One of the things which is quite interesting about the cancellation of this British study is that it follows um, hard on the heels of the cancellation of of a major American study called the National Children's Study, which also wanted to um, recruit and follow about 100,000 children until they were 21. So that was cancelled at the end of last year. What have scientists lost now that this study, the life study, won't go ahead? I mean, what was it doing that's different to previous efforts to do these kinds of giant cohort studies? So this particular study um, really wanted to explore um, the influences on a, a person's health and circumstances that happened very early in life. So they had a real focus on um, exploring pregnancy and also they were going to see children when they were six months old and 12 months old because there's a real feeling now that what happens in these early times of development can have a really profound impact on how our lives play out. They wanted to be very inclusive and they want to be representative of the British population by um, bringing in people from all ethnic minorities, from all types of socioeconomic circumstances, including disadvantaged backgrounds. And so they argue now that one of the reasons that perhaps they were unable to recruit as quickly as they might have liked was they were targeting populations which can be difficult to encourage into studies such as this. Do you think there'll be efforts to revamp 
a similar study in relaunch? There are birth cohort studies already all over the world. Um, there's a huge one in Norway of over 100,000 children. I think the question that scientists are thinking about now is based on these two mega ambitious, high profile efforts going down, whether they need to rethink the way these things are done. For example, one way to, to do them successfully is to focus your recruitment in a specific geographic area where you can really get the local population on board. Or another way to do it, which some cohorts already are, is to um, use all the sort of vast databases which are already out there of information. So, for example, many countries already have registries of health information, earnings, employment, things like that. You've been looking into these types of studies in some depth for a book that's coming out early next year. That's right. Have you got a favourite cohort study? I have not surveyed all the cohort studies around the world, so my focus is very much on, a, on quite a famous series uh, called the British Birth Cohorts, of which this one was going to be uh, the most recent in the series. Do you have the impression, having looked into studies like this over quite a wide sweep of, of history, really, um, that it's just harder for these scientists today to recruit than it has been in the past. I think that's definitely the case. And actually, you can see that if you look back historically, um, in the early days of some of these studies, um, women just signed up because uh, they felt it was their duty and they would do their bit for the country. Certainly, that was the case after the war. And now they find that recruitment rates in, in many cohorts and population surveys tend to be lower. And of course, we can kind of understand that because we're all busy people. And you're asking, you know, pregnant women to give up several hours of their time to potentially travel to a clinic, to give their time, to give their samples. And people are perhaps have a different attitude to engaging in this type of research than they once did. If they weren't offering Amazon vouchers, then nobody's interested. Well, actually, they were. Um, oh. One of the plans was to, they either had started this or they were going to start it, was to offer a £20 shopping voucher as an incentive. But, you know, is that enough to overcome people's inertia? I don't know. Helen, thank you for joining us. There's more on that story online, so head to nature.com slash news or follow at Nature News on Twitter. And just up on our YouTube channel, a film called Ultrasonic Levitation. That title tells you basically all you need to know. And no, they didn't yet levitate a human. Sorry about that. But head to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel for more. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. 